Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Napoldangel. It's estimated that as many as one in five students in the United States has dyslexia, but there's still a considerable disconnect between what we know about dyslexia and how that knowledge is applied in the classroom. It's considered the most common of all learning disorders, and yet not everyone who has dyslexia gets diagnosed, and the condition is rarely understood. Dyslexia can create enormous challenges, but it can also lend itself to extraordinary creativity and insight. Successful entrepreneurs like Richard Branson and Jamie Oliver have opened up about having dyslexia, and even Connecticut's governor, Dan Malloy, has shared that he is dyslexic. Here he is giving advice to children with dyslexia as part of Child Mind Institute's hashtag MyYoungerSelf social media campaign. Life has many challenges that it will throw at you, uh, and dyslexia is one for us. Uh, but uh, you can overcome the difficulties that you're going to be caused to live through. Uh, there will be a brighter and better day. Uh, you will make progress. Uh, and uh, you can have a great and wonderful life and make a real difference to the rest of the world. Governor Malloy recently signed a bill here in Connecticut to require special education teachers to complete a course on evidence-based literacy interventions for students with dyslexia. The bill actually goes into effect this year on July 1st. Today we'll learn more about this reading disability. Coming up, we'll hear from one of the leading researchers in the field and we'll discuss the prevalence of dyslexia in prisons. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266, email wherewelive at wnpr.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. But first, we want to dig into what it's like to have dyslexia. Joining us now to help us with this is Gabriella Emanuel. She's a reporter for WGBH News in Boston. She's formerly with NPR's Ed Team, and she has dyslexia. Gabriella, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. So, Gabriella, just tell us a little bit about yourself. When did you discover that you have dyslexia? Was it early on? Yes, it was very early on. I have memories in uh, kindergarten, first grade, going to a reading specialist. And um, I think I had some benefits in being diagnosed early. They say that's really important. And for me, um, it's a genetic uh, learning disorder. And I have it on both sides. So my parents Mm. knew to look out for it. And then also I had a speech impediment, and the person who helped me with that, I think, helped figure out that I also had a reading challenge. And certainly we know that a lot of students don't get that early intervention, and that was probably pretty key for you in your development. I want to know just from you and your experience, what's it like having dyslexia? I mean, especially someone who's a reporter, somebody who works with words, I mean, what's that like for you? Yeah, um, it's something that is really hard to describe. But I've come very recently to kind of think of it as almost like a tongue twister, but for the brain. You look at something, and you think it's going to be easy. You see the words, and you see the letters in order. It's a, a misconception that they're backwards or jumbled. But then when you go to read it, it's actually really hard, and you almost don't know what's going on in there. Mm. Um, kind of like a tongue twister. If you really concentrate and spend extra time on it, things get better. So practice really does lead to improvement, at least for me. But it's also exhausting, and it's it's still exhausting. Mm. 
in your series for NPR, you did a number of stories where you um, you talked about your experience. You talked to a lot of students who had dyslexia. Uh, you described the different categories of words that you encountered. So there are words that you've studied that you've been able to memorize, and then there are some words that you just don't recognize them. You've never seen them written down. You might have heard them but never seen them. Do you have an example of some of that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so initially, one of the strategies my parents and my teachers used to help me was they would write words on index cards. They called them sight words, and they were there for me to memorize. My understanding is in the brain, it's using the same part of the brain as uh, object recognition. So I would recognize these words as objects, and I went through them, hundreds of them, every day, memorizing words. And then, like you're saying, there are all these other words that I don't know, and they weren't on those uh, index cards. And those, there are lots of them because there's so many words out there. Something like uh, discombobulated. Mm. I don't, I'm very bad at spelling, so I can't even tell you how it's spelled. But these are words that probably weren't on the index cards and that when I encounter them in the world, I need to use context clues to figure them out because sounding out words is really hard. I see the letters, I see them there in order, but I don't break them down into those units that can help you kind of decode a word. Mm. I, I can, but it takes a ton of work and it doesn't happen naturally or automatically mm. for me. So, and, and talk about a little bit about that. You know, for you, being a journalist who has to write for her job, who has to work with words, What's it like for you with Twitter? Because that's something that's very, you know, it, it uses um, 140 characters, as people know, but you have to speak briefly. What's it like? What's your engagement with Twitter been like? Yeah. So I actually um, don't use Twitter that much. I'll use it to look at what other people are saying, and I'll, I'll tweet out when I've been sent out to a breaking news event and mm. spo <laughs> I'm supposed to use it. Um, but that's actually, I've never thought about it, but I think that's a really good instance of where dyslexia still influences my life. So it's not something that goes away with time. You don't grow out of it. Right. And uh, proofreading is really hard for me. Mm. Uh, because I'm looking at these words as objects, I'm not kind of scanning to make sure every letter is there unless I focus on it and do that. So I do kind of have this fear when I'm writing emails or tweeting that I haven't gotten all the the letters right there. Mm. Um, so I, it does take an extra level of work to do it, and that may be why I've been cautious about tweeting. You're reporting you went to a reading center in D.C., and you spoke to a lot of kids who have dyslexia, and you asked them, uh, just like what I just asked you, you just asked them what it's like for, uh, for them. And here's a little snippet of your story. Here you are talking to one of those kids. It's fourth grader Thomas Lester. What is it like to have dyslexia? It's hard, like really hard. Yeah. It's like frustrating that you can't read the simplest word in the world. He decides to demonstrate, opening his book and picking the word galloping. Gulping? Gulping? I don't, I quit. So, Gabriella, what's it like just listening to that, listening to him uh, struggle? And But what was it like going for you to, to the reading center to see these kids? I mean, at least they're getting these intensive services. Uh, so what about kids who aren't able to get those kinds of services? Yeah, so dyslexia manifests a lot of different ways. Uh, so I went in kind of prepared to not necessarily see myself in the kids. But with Thomas and with a bunch of the other kids, 
I watched them struggle and I knew exactly what they were going through. So for me, that was actually a huge experience because I've gone through my life knowing what it's like for me, but not necessarily seeing everyone else have dyslexia. Mm. Um, Even though it is really common, it wasn't something that was pointed out to me. So it was incredible for me to see them. And I think it was nice for them to be able to talk with me about it too. But you're, you're absolutely right. A lot, a lot of kids don't get these services. And sometimes I see that in older kids where they're still struggling. And it's really hard to see because there are techniques and um, strategies that can make it a lot easier. Mm. And they're still using some of the same techniques I used as a kid today in the reading centers. And what's interesting about dyslexia that you know we've learned is that Often, most children who are identified with dyslexia have average to above average intelligence, but because they struggle with learning, they tend to either feel like they're not smart or they feel dumb, or and, and it's easy for them to act out when they when they don't get identified. You talked about how it's easy to feel embarrassed when you have dyslexia, and then it's easy mm-hmm. to worry that people might not think uh, or might think you're not smart. How did you deal with that, and what are some of the strategies that you might offer for others? You're absolutely right. I was embarrassed as a kid, and it wasn't because I thought I was dumb. Um, My parents were really good at making sure I felt like I was a capable and smart person. Um, But I was really embarrassed because I was worried other people would think I was dumb. Mm. Um, And I've heard that from other people uh, who have dyslexia also. And I would say my parents did a couple different things. First, they made a huge effort to help me learn to read. Uh, Every single night they sat and read with me and it it was painful for me and it was painful for them because it's it was really hard but they they did that and then they also made sure I was really good at other things that I could be proud of. Things where I put in effort and I saw the progress. I felt like I was successful and I think that was that was really important because I could be proud and I could kind of know that I was talented and that work <laughs> led to outcomes, right. which wasn't always the case when I was reading. People talk, often talk about there are certain distinct advantages. I mean, you yourself are a Rhodes Scholar. You're a public radio journalist. You seem to be successful in this field. Um, <laughs> so, so there's got to be some advantages, right? So I mean, talk about some of the advantages that you think um, people with dyslexia might have. Yeah, I only kind of started to think about that later in life when I was able to look back and... Um, and kind of see what impact it might have had on my life. And I think the biggest thing it did for me was that so much of my childhood at school, I was living outside my comfort zone. I was doing things that weren't easy for me, and and I had to keep doing it. Um, and I think that in some ways that's kind of become a little piece of me where uh, I'll, I'll come across something that's not easy, and I'll know that I just have to keep going. And now I look back and I say, that is all because of dyslexia. What uh, advice do you have uh, for parents to best support their children if they have dyslexia? The first thing I would say is every researcher I talked to said, the sooner the better. Getting services at a really young age can make a huge difference in the long term. So often um, there's a sense of, oh, let's wait and see. Maybe this is a stage. Maybe they're um, just going to grow out of it. And that may be the case, but it's best to get tested and figure out um, what's going on. So trying to kind of be active early on. And then the second thing is what I mentioned a little bit earlier is 
finding something else the kid is good at and can feel proud of and can um, do where there's this direct link between effort and success. And then the last thing is making a financial plan because dyslexia can be really expensive. There's a lot of testing that's involved, a lot of tutoring that can make a huge difference long term, but requires an upfront investment. And uh, I know my parents took out loans in order to help support me in my education. And I mean, I can't tell you exactly what impact that had, but I'm so thankful that I got those supports at a very young age. And I think this is often a conversation that a lot of people have about disability generally is that the upfront investment is expensive, but you consider the long-term uh, outcomes should those services not be given early. And a lot of students who don't get services early get frustrated, they act out. Um, and we're going to talk to uh, somebody later on on the show who, who didn't get these services and ended up uh, into a life of crime. Um, Gabrielle Emanuel is a reporter for WGBH News in Boston and formerly with NPR's Ed Team. She joined us from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Gabriella. Thank you. When we come back, we'll learn more about the latest research into dyslexia from one of the leading experts in the field, and we'll talk with an actor about his struggles with dyslexia and his journey from prison to behind the camera. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266, email wherewelive at wnpr.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Nalpothanchel. Today we're talking about dyslexia, the most common learning disability in the country and possibly the world. We've talked a little bit about what it's like to have dyslexia, so we wanted to bring in someone who has studied this learning disability for a long time. But we also want to hear from you. Do you live with dyslexia, or are you the parent of a child who does? Tell us about your experience. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. You can email us at wherewelive at wmpr.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us by phone is Dr. Sally Shaywitz. She's author of The Overcoming Dyslexia. She's also professor of pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, and she's also co-director of the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. Dr. Shaywitz, welcome to Where We Live. Good morning. So we know that dyslexia is considered among the most common learning disorders, but what do we know about just how common it actually is? Okay, well, first of all, I think people should be aware that we use the word learning disability, but of all the learning disabilities, 80 to 90% are, are dyslexia. Mm. So, it, and dyslexia is the most well-delineated and scientifically studied. Your question about how common it is is a really important one. It depends who you ask and where you look. And by that I mean that if you evaluate in a study every individual, every child or every adult, you will find that it affects one out of five. That's huge. Mm. That's one of the most common, if not the most common, neurobehavioral conditions. On the other hand, if you ask schools how many kids are dyslexic, they'll say, well, maybe three or four percent. And that large difference reflects the fact to be counted, you first have to be identified. Mm. And schools, unfortunately, often, far too often, try to avoid identifying children who are dyslexic. So if you 
want an accurate number, it's one out of five. If you want, if you want a number of who has been identified by schools, it's three to four percent. And what we have to do is make sure to sort of close that gap and make sure that all children are identified. And what makes that even more urgent is at, uh, I direct what's called the Connecticut Longitudinal Study uh, that has been going on for several decades and includes uh, over 400 children. And in our study, we wanted to see when people talk about the achievement gap between dyslexic readers and typical readers. So we wanted to see when does that actually occur. And we looked at our data over time, you know, beginning in uh, kindergarten and going on, you know, through, through school. And you often hear, well, you have to read by age, uh, by grade three or four. And you know what we found? Hmm. We found that that achievement gap is already there and large in first grade. Wow. First grade. So it's not let's wait. There it is. Right. And you heard Gabrielle give a wonderful description of what it's like. And for children who are dyslexic, um, even those who are identified, but even worse, if they're not identified, they're called on to read aloud in front of their peers, it's not a pleasant experience. People make fun of them or bully them. So we have to be able to identify children very early. And the good news, and it's news, is that uh, when um, my colleague and spouse, Dr. Bennett Shaywitz, who's the Charles Schwab professor at Yale, and I saw this data about the achievement gap, we went to work to see could we develop a screening measure that would identify children as early as possible. And we have been able to do that. So we've developed um, what um, has been labeled the Shaywitz Dyslexia Screen uh, that can be used in kindergarten and an, uh, a, a separate one that can be used in first grade. And the beauty of it is that it is completed by the person who knows the child best and try to help the child learn to read his or her teacher. It takes 10 minutes. And it's very reliable and effective. So um, and, I just want to ask yeah. quickly, um, so we, if we know so much about, you know, the prevalence, but the identification is so low, I mean, you're offering a solution through this new um, system that you've created. I'm wondering, though, if there isn't um, some sort of cultural disconnect that um, prevents um, schools from really pursuing this is it is it resources is it just a is it a culture um, that has really um, taken schools so long to catch up because the research has been out there for quite a long time but yet here we are still very far behind in, in terms of how we implement it's implemented in the classroom oh that's an excellent question and you're right we've known about dyslexia since 1896 when a British physician described a bright 14-year-old boy who would be the brightest in his class if only he could read. Um, and we've thought about this a lot. And I think that somehow education has been afraid of dyslexia. Mm. Um, the educators uh, don't discuss it. Um, and 
and don't screen for it, don't diagnose it, and don't give children the services they need. Uh, and I think that's changing now, but I don't know if it's quick enough. I just returned um, from a wonderful um, summit at Microsoft um, on inclusion, and uh, I was uh, proud to be able to keynote dyslexia. Mm. And I can't tell you how many parents, um, people who attended um, from all over the country came with the same thing. My school won't talk about dyslexia. Wow. My school won't identify, and my school doesn't have services. Well, it's, in, so, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because we have uh, several parents who are actually on the line right now, and they have some questions, and maybe you can kind of help them guide through this, um, this process. We have Jamie, who's online from Hartford. Uh, Jamie, you have a daughter who has profound dyslexia, and you've been having some trouble getting services. Um, Jamie, go ahead. You're on Where We Live. Uh, hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, well, currently my daughter is getting services, um, but at this point she's almost 15 years old, and this has only been within the last maybe four years or so. Um, she was identified. She was actually in kindergarten when they first recommended that she stay back. Um, and, of course, retention for a dyslexic child uh, is, is, number one, traumatic for them. Um, and then she went on to be... Well, I, I don't want to interrupt Ed, you, but oh, I think ahead. it's important to say because this is a common recommendation. Right, and right. And scientific studies have shown that it harms the child. Correct, they, correct. They don't benefit. Um, it's putting a child in a holding pattern, and, and I, I think it's not only not effective, it's unethical. It is. So I, I agree I with you. I do. Jamie, thank you so much for your call. I want to get to another caller who is um, – calling from East Hartford. Milok also has a, a child. He uh, has a six-year-old boy with trouble reading. Uh, Milok, go ahead. You're on where we live. Yeah, what happened is, like, my child is getting, like, a special education. He had, like, a mathematics. He do, like, until, like, a 20s, like, for example, like, say, 10 plus 10, 5 plus 5. And the thing is, like, uh, he have a trouble reading, but they help him. He writes, like, his name, my name, mom's name, all everybody's name. But the thing is, like, I'm just worried about when I heard on the radio right now, I don't know what's going to happen. But he's still getting, like, a special education and a teaching class. And then he's doing, like, I asked, they never mentioned, like, in a school. But they say he's keeping, like, he's doing very well. And then, but I don't know for future what's going to happen. So that just, when I heard on the radio, I just get worried about it. Mm. Milak, thank you so much for your call. Um, we have one other call. John uh, from Farmington is calling. Um, John, go ahead. You're on Where We Live. What's your comment or question? Uh, it's a fascinating show, and just want to tell you, I've had, uh, uh, I've lived with uh, mild dyslexia my whole life. But it's uh, it was fascinating. Your first, your first person from Boston was interesting because it was a woman, and I haven't. You don't usually run into women uh, as much, but the uh, I would say that her comments of where it's come, uh, where the research has come, is great. There's a, a book that I first found. John, you're breaking up. Are you still there? I think we might have lost John. Um, so, Sally, just talk about, uh, Dr. Shaywitz, talk a little bit about some of these concerns. I mean, it seems to be some things I'm sure you've been he hearing your whole life, um, just some of the, you know, uh, the, the, the concern about getting services, the concern about 
uh, the future for your children. And then what about the, the point that uh, caller made just now um, that um, he, he feels like it's rare that you feel that uh, girls are identified with dyslexia? Is that, is that also something that is uh, happening? Well, it's such an interesting comment because for many years, only boys were identified, and that means that only boys receive services. And uh, in one of our studies several year, a number of years ago, um, we asked teachers, you know, to uh, comment on different characteristics of the students. And what we found was that they did um, identify boys way more often than girls. But when um, we looked at the data, we found that the teachers were identifying children who were causing difficulties in class. They were referring them for evaluation. And this, uh, in a paper we published in 1990 in the Journal of American Medical Association, we reported that the teachers identified children who were you know, throwing airplanes across the room, calling out, and these were primarily boys. Mm. Yet, at the same time, girls whose scores, because we tested the children's reading and other um, uh, areas, girls who were struggling so hard in reading but were sitting quietly at their desk were overlooked mm. and not identified. And actually, we carried out the first, I believe, the first studies of girls and boys because if people aren't identified, then they're not studied. The studies were primarily of boys. And now we know that they're, um, that um, both boys and girls are dyslexic, and we need to identify um, both boys and girls. And it's also really important for people to know because often people assume if you're a slow reader, you're a slow thinker and you're not very smart. You've touched on this earlier in the program. Right. And the audience should know that we carried out a study when we looked at reading and IQ over time, intelligence level. And we found that typical readers, intelligence and reading were what was called dynamically linked. They went together. So that if you were very bright, you would typically be a very good reader. Right. However, we, you know, we who are so passionate about dyslexia said, well, let's look at this. This was typical readers. Let's look at this in people who are dyslexic. And so we looked at intelligence and reading in individuals who were dyslexic. And when we did that, we found it was totally different than in typical readers in dyslexia. You can have a very high IQ, but read at a much lower level. Dr. Shaywitz, um, we got a lot to talk about. Um, I want to get to um, Amir Paraka, uh, who's waiting on the line. Uh, it, it's, he, Amir is somebody who has experienced um, dyslexia late and uh, experienced, uh, was diagnosed late in life, but experienced what it's like to fall through the cracks. Um, uh, this is where we live. I'm David DeRoshan for Lucy Napotential. We're talking about dyslexia. We got a lot of callers on the line. Uh, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wnpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, but I do want to turn now to Amir Baraka. He is the author of The Life I Chose, The Streets Lied to Me. He's actor. He's an activist. He's an educator. He's joining us from the studios of WWNO in New Orleans. Uh, Amir, welcome to Where We Live. 
Hey, good morning, and, and uh, I'm glad to be here and glad to be on the same line with Dr. Sally Shea. What an incredible woman. The, her book is amazing, and it's a must, it's a must read. Well, I, I, you know, we got a lot of really great guests, Amir, and I really appreciate you joining us um, this morning. I, I want you to just kind of tell us quickly about your experience growing up in New Orleans. You grew up in one of the most dangerous housing projects in the country. Um, what was it like for you not being able to read, but not knowing why you couldn't read? Well, the, the interesting thing is that the, the lady that, that came on first uh, had a wonderful story, and the story was that she had parents. Both parents were involved in she got detected early uh, because both parents struggled with it. However, in my case, I grew up in uh, what you would call object poverty. Uh, without a father, my father was a heroin addict, and my mother was very, very derelict in her duties. And uh, I fell completely through the cracks. Both brothers and sisters went on to college. Uh, I couldn't read. I was frustrated. I was called stupid and dumb by my mother and uh, my siblings. And uh, my only hope and aspirations uh, was to sell drugs. I I chose to sell drugs because dyslexia basically basically incarcerated me. I, I was I was incarcerated at a very early age. I was sleeping in the project hallways because I was afraid to take the spelling test on Fridays. So I, I skipped school on Fridays, slept in the hallways, and I had to find a way out. And selling drugs was my way out. I I, I just I, I couldn't function. I. I was tired of being laughed at in school. And uh, one of the most crucial things that happened to me was when I got to the sixth grade, I don't know how I got to the sixth grade uh, because I, I, I never pass. It just passed me on and on and on. A girlfriend of mine, I, I had to read in, the, in, uh, in the, the English class and the teacher called me up to read and I couldn't read and I struggled through every word and, and I was laughed at, people were laughing and I made up in my mind that day uh, that I was never going back to school, and I was completely disenchanted, and I dove off into the drug life. Mm. So, Amir, I mean, certainly your your uh, story is probably not a standalone story. I know in a lot of urban areas, the diagnosis of dyslexia is often uh, way, uh, the prevalence rates are, are the same, but the diagnosis happens way later or never, and, and a lot of kids end up falling through the cracks. Um, and I, I wanted to just kind of spout out a few statistics that are uh, to kind of talk about um, literacy and its relation to um, to criminal activity. So we know that 85% of juveniles who interface with the juvenile court system are functionally illiterate. We know that being able to read determines what kind of job you'll get. We know that uh, more than 60% of prison inmates are functionally illiterate. Illiterate. We know that um, getting help with reading actually will uh, make you less likely to return to prison. And the Department of Justice actually has stated that the link between academic failure and delinquency, violence, and crime is welded to reading failure. But yet we still, as a country, are so far behind with, um, like Dr. Shaywitz was talking about, this the identification of these kids early on. Um, what is it like for you hearing those statistics? And, and, and I know that you do some work in the local jails trying to reach out and mentor youth there. Um, what's it like for you hearing those statistics and how do you try to reach youth and, and try to help them change their life around? Well, I, I'm completely aware of those statistics and have been for, for some time. Uh, the thing is to hit on the point uh, with that now is, is that prison is such a big business now. So it's, 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 you know, why would they want to teach you when they want to keep their hotels filled to capacity? So uh, we're going to have a huge struggle in that regard because, uh, 
you know, the facts are there. These people can't read. These people, many of these people, 60% of them are dyslexic. Do you think I want to help these people? Because if I do help these people, my hotel room uh, are, are, are empty. So that's a whole other story. But uh, what I do is I go in and tell my story. I'm very open and honest about my struggles, about the challenges that I had with my family, the names that I was called, et cetera, because I know that there is a connection with those boys. I go in, mainly with boys. I go in and tell them because they're, they, they have experienced, many of them have experienced the same thing. And I tell them my, my challenges, how I was able to read, how I learned to read. I learned to read uh, by writing down every word I didn't know. I'm talking about I had for four years I spent in prison. I literally wrote down thousands of words up and just until the last year with Dr. Conway out of uh, 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 out of Florida, the now program. I've been taking his his class and man, listen, I've been able to segment words, uh, pronounce words that that I don't know. I can actually can come across the word. I was on the plane about a, about a month and a half ago and I came across the word neurologist. Right. And I was going to skip the word. Right. But I knew that I could segment that word and, you know, and pronounce that word. Mm. And I said that word. And there isn't a word right now that I cannot pronounce through this program. It's 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 the information is out there. As Dr. Sally Shea would say, I mean, they are the gurus. They have this information. It's it's there. That's all the system needs to do is go to these people and say, Dr. Sally Shea, what must we do? What must we do? And and, and she will give them the information to to uh, uh, to correct this. You talk about being uh, the link between the academic world and, and poor communities. Um, can you talk about that position that you were in and how you use that to reach um, uh, youth? Well, I'm in a very unique position because the thing is, is that, you know, I'm reading a book now, uh, Diffusion Innovation. And in order to get your ideas into a system, uh, a person has to be on the same economic status or academic status with that community or with that department or whatever you're trying to reach. So everywhere I go, I, I'm, all, I'm all across the country with this book. I'm, I'm telling my story all across the country. Uh, I'm able to connect so well with people uh, uh, in poverty-stricken communities because when I tell my story, how I was brought up in poverty, object poverty, without a father, without, with a mother that was derelict in her duty that called me names, kids can relate to that. So they just gravitate towards me. So, you know, I'm launching this new thing. Uh, uh, it's coming up. It's uh, uh, dyslexic is sexy. It's no longer a disc. Uh, so it's, it's some awesome things that, you know, we're, we're going to do away with the stigma and the shame of dyslexic. Because as, as Dr. Shally say, what so eloquently said, I mean, these people, people who have this problem are not crazy. They're not dumb. They're not stupid. They're bright people. I, I know that I'm bright. I'm extremely bright and I'm a go-getter. So uh, uh, that's that's the connection that we have. That's the connection actually that I had I have with people that are in poverty. So uh, it's an amazing thing, and I'm I'm anxious to get started with this the next school year. I'm I'm fired up about it because we're gonna do away with the stigma and the shame of dyslexia. You know, that's one thing that um, I would like to talk about is is sort of how people identify or use dyslexia to uh, identify themselves. Is it a disability or is it uh, is it a blessing? Is it a little bit of both? Um, we do got a bunch of callers. I do want to get to Lisa in, in Southington. Uh, Lisa, go ahead. You're on where we live. Sure. Thank you. 
Um, I just wanted to share very quickly our story. We have a 12-year-old daughter um, who was having difficulty in kindergarten, first grade, both with reading and writing, and they basically told us to be patient. And they said it was the worst, most creative handwriting they'd ever seen. Um, And also she was continuing to make the same mistakes, not improving as she was reading. Um, They put her in early intervention. It wasn't helping. I was told they had to be two years behind to qualify for test. Oh, sorry, I lost Lisa. Um, So, um, Amir, just quickly, um, can you talk about um, how dyslexia sort of fits into your identity? Um, Do you identify yourself as a dyslexic person, as a person with dyslexia? You talked about sort of making dyslexia sexy. Can you talk about how it fits in with your identity? Well, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, for, for many years, I thought, you know, I found out that I had dyslexia while I was in prison. At the age of 23 going into 24, I was completely ashamed up until then. I was, listen, I was embarrassed. Majority of my life, I was embarrassed. But I knew that there was something special about me. I knew that I was a hustler. I knew that, that, that I, you know, I was, I was one of these type of guys. I was a go-getter. I was creative. I thought outside of the box. Uh, uh, again, I, I was a thinker. So uh, that I knew that I, had, I, I was. Uh, but when I found out that I had dyslexia, I, did, I didn't know what dyslexia was. Uh, I, as I continue on, and when I read Dr. Shally Shaywood's book, it really illuminated a whole lot of things. And I, I, feel, I feel as though dyslexia can be a blessing. It can be a blessing if you have two parents and you have early detection. But dyslexia can be a curse. If you're growing up in poverty, uh, mothers are not there, fathers are not there. I've met so many men in prison that could not read that are doing 40 and 50 and 60 years and cannot read nor write. So it was a curse to them mm. because they chose the street life. They chose a life of crime because they, they were embarrassed to go in class. Uh, they were called stupid and dumb. They felt stupid and dumb. I was just blessed and fortunate enough to make my way through, to make my way through. I was facing 60 years in prison, and I was guilty. But by God's grace, the jury came back with a lesser sentence and gave me four years. Had, had that not happened, I would be in that cell right now today, dyslexic, couldn't read, couldn't write, never knew it. But four years, uh, it, it, it was a blessing. It just was a blessing. But I feel... I am I am compelled now to go through every city, every town, every prison across the country and share with men that this uh, 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 this thing, dyslexia, can be overcome. It can be overcome, but you still live with. I still live with those wounds. I still live with dyslexia. I I don't know if I'll ever get over it. It doesn't matter. Mm. But the, what what I do know is is that I'm gifted in other areas. Mm. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an actor. I'm a film producer. I've written. Uh, 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 one book, and I'm writing my second one currently right now with Dr. Conway on dyslexia. So I, these are things that a person that that could not pronounce words are doing. So that's my inspiration to other young people. You can do it. Don't get frustrated. Mm. Don't be sad. It's no longer a disc. It's sexy now. Mm. It's sexy. I'm a sexy dyslexic. 
Amir. And what I'm a, proud of it. That's a tremendous story, Amir. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. We've been speaking with Amir Baraka from New Orleans and also Dr. Sally Shaywitz from the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity about dyslexia, what it's like to live with it, uh, what we know about it. Um, they'll stick around for the rest of the show. Coming up, we'll speak with someone who's been teaching dyslexic prisoners in the UK how to read and write. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Email wherewelive at wnpr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We've been talking about dyslexia, considered the most common learning disorder. We know it affects children and adults at school, at work, and in the home. But what about in prisons? This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche in for Lucy Nalpothanchel. Joining us now to discuss dyslexia inside prisons is someone who works directly with dyslexic inmates. Joining us is Jackie Hewitt-Main. She's author of the book Transforming Prisoners' Lives, Told Through Prisoner Stories, and she's also project director of Dyslexia Behind Bars, and she's founder and CEO of the Cascade Foundation. Jackie, welcome to where we live. Uh, good morning. Well, in England, it's afternoon, and we've got a very sunny day. Um, I'm very honored to be on your radio show. It's lovely to hear, and, and I've been listening to what everybody's been saying. Um, and Sally was absolutely right when she spoke about that it was like over 100 years ago that dyslexia was found by one little boy, and yet here we are. I still don't think we've made enough process uh, uh, to, to help all these people. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and we're glad it's sunny over there. It's a little rainy over here, but that's maybe you can shed some sunlight on this conversation. I so, will, I will, I promise you. <laughs> we're also joined by actor... Yes, you're right. I've been in um, the prisons now since 2005. Mm. Um, I went into a, a woman's prison. That's where I first started. Um, I, had, um, I had done schools. I'd been in training providers. Um, I didn't know that I was dyslexic till I was 40. Mm. And, and funny enough, I'd actually come out to America. I, I did a lot of help. used to come out there for health food shows. And people knew that I was dyslexic in America eight years before England knew that I was dyslexic. Mm. Wow. So it, 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 that was a very mad time for me. But because of what happened and um, for me, the, the problems that I had, um, again, like Amir, when we talked about what it was like at school, the frustration, the anger, because, you know, you felt so sick and dumb and stupid. Um, I was a self-harmer, mm. anorexic, um, bulimia, um, very abusive relationships because I didn't love me. Mm. And if I didn't love me, you're not going to love me. Right. So it, it, it really was, as soon as I was diagnosed and I started to realize and look at different ways of teaching, um, I went straight out um, and I was helping, as I say, schools, training providers. Then I had this idea while I was doing my BA in special education needs to actually go into prisons. Mm. And, and what I found was absolutely horrendous. Um, so I started in the south, I started in the ladies' prison, then I got funding from a load of businessmen and I went into a man's prison. Um, I then I went over to Sweden, Holland, Australia, and in England now I've been brought to the north. Um, so I've actually I went into a man's prison um, and they, the government wanted to see if my project could be, you know, sort of used from one area of the country to the other. and. We've actually we've proven it so so much. Mm. So I wanted to talk, and this is something that fascinates me: is sort of the prevalence of learning disabilities in prisons 
is often way higher than it is in the general population. Can yeah. you talk about what the prevalence is of dyslexia in the prisons or in the UK where you work? Well, we I found 53 percent uh, who had dyslexia. We had 70 percent had low IQ. Um, but again, you see, like what Sally was saying, the colleges in the education departments, nobody wants to admit this. Nobody wants, because that's going to cause, that's, you know, you've got to pay more money. And who's going to pay for people to teach? Right. One and, of the things... So this is, you know, where I've been lucky to mm. manage to either find my own funding, I'm constantly trying to raise money to, to go into a prison and help because nobody wants to put the money up in the first place. Mm. You know, a rumor we hear in the States, uh, I'm not sure if you guys hear it over there, is that uh, prison administrators will look at third grade literacy levels to estimate how many beds they need to make uh, to uh, for and for future prison populations. Uh, yeah. I think that's been debunked, but it seems to make yeah. rational sense. If you know that, uh, you're, that most prisoners are going to be functionally illiterate, uh, that would be a good way, to, uh, albeit a, sort of a morbid way, to guess uh, you know, how many prisoners you would have in the future. I'd like to know just quickly from you, um, Jackie, yes. what, what is unique about the way you teach? How are you able to go in and teach prisoners? I mean, I, I, I understand that one, um, one of your subjects was in his 60s when you, when you got to him. Yeah. Uh, Frankie, I think Frankie Sims, he was one of the um, gangsters from London. And he was, um, again, I think it's storytelling, like Amir said. You know, I go in and I tell people my story. You know, I'm very honest. My hands are open. I'm explaining, you know, my own life, my son, because as soon as my son, I was diagnosed, he was diagnosed. He now works for the Home Office and also he's a barrister. My young son who had the head injury, you know, he works for a company. He's in a management. Um, so... To me, it's about storytelling. It's, it's explaining what, what happened to me. And then we sort of look at different ways of teaching. So I use sand, I use water, I use toothpaste. It's very fun. It, it, mm. it's, uh, it's because of how we've been, you know, the baggage that we've carried through hated education, you have to make it fun to start with. Um, I use software from Sweden. I use all these different activities and different ideas to put together, um, and, it, and it works. It absolutely works. Mm. We've so all... now we've got men who have started their own charities. We've got men that have passed qualifications for the first time in their life. Um, so it, it, it's a really good system. It works. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you know, I want you to keep on the phone for uh, for the next couple of minutes. We only have a few minutes left in the show. I did want to take at least um, uh, one caller, um, uh, Darcy in Glastonbury. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to make a point. I have two dyslexic children. One of them is a 10-year-old in fourth grade, and the other one is a 19-year-old who graduated uh, last year from a magnet school in Hartford. And the disparity of the services that my two children have received based on the fact that now dyslexia is allowed to be federally recognized as a disability in the public school system is absolutely amazing. With my older daughter, I knew she had dyslexia. I'm an educator. I uh, you know, was able to evaluate her myself and come up with that diagnosis. And I had to fight tooth and nail for absolutely everything that she got. Mm -hmm. um, I was, you know, 
told that when she entered middle school and high school, there would be vocational programs. She could go into the grocery stores and learn how to bag groceries because she wasn't given credit for her cognitive ability. All they were focusing on was her deficiency. And I had to fight outside of the school system and take those extra courses at a Dyslexia Institute and pay for all of the services that she needed because I believed in my child and I knew what her ability level was and knew that this was an uncontrollable disability. Whereas with my younger child, she was of the benefit of the federal recognition that we were allowed to say children were dyslexic in the schools. And now there are programs that are implemented specifically for dyslexic children. So she's getting all of the benefit. Her special ed services are geared towards a dyslexic child. Whereas my other daughter didn't get that benefit. We had to go outside. So I'm seeing personally the difference in what was and what is now. Darcy, thank you so much for your call. Um, we only have a bit, a, a minute left. Dr. Sally Shaywitz, could you just comment quickly on these comments in about 30 seconds, and can you just uh, respond to some of the, um, the Darcy's experience? Uh, yeah, because I think it's really very, very important for people to realize that science has come to education um, and to be aware of there is a 21st century definition of dyslexia, um, and um, that was passed in the U.S. Senate unanimously. And our own Senator Chris Murphy was one of the sponsors, and uh, including also uh, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. So what we know and what this says and parents need to know is that dyslexia is an unexpected difficulty for an individual who has the intelligence to be a much better reader. But it's also very, very important to know that because we've been hearing two sides of dyslexia. And this legis- this resolution states dyslexia is a paradox mm. in an individual. So you can have weaknesses often uh, as you get older, slow reading, but really high strengths in critical reading, in thinking, in reasoning, and problem solving. So we have some of the greatest people who have contributed to society who are also dyslexic. Dr. Shaywitz, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. I want to thank Gabriella Emanuel uh, from WGBH. I want to thank Dr. Sally Shaywitz for, uh, from the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. A lot to talk about, uh, but we have to leave it there. Amir Baraka joined us from New Orleans, and Jackie Hewitt-Maine uh, joined us from the U.K. I want to thank uh, Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson for producing the show. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tilarski. Check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Napolitanchel. Thanks for listening.